Hello and welcome to part two of the fourth Medicine 360 podcast, our conversation with Femi Oyabode. In, in medical humanities, um, we talk a lot about um, subjectivity and it's often very patient orientated. What about looking at the doctor, the role of the doctor through through humanities? Is there um, an, an objectivity to it? Um, yeah, I mean the, the the terms are always very interesting, aren't they? So, so we uh, if you if you read a novel, um, so we take uh, Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar as a good example, where she talks about her psychiatrist. So what you've got in that sort of novel is that Plath objectifies the psychiatrist. So so that is helpful to, uh, to the doctors to read. Because they, for the first time, see themselves as others see them. So, so literature is useful for that. The medical humanity is very, very helpful for that. Um, so there are wonderful, uh, so that's a, a novel that I've talked about, but there are wonderful uh, autobiographical accounts of uh, people with cancers or people with motor neuron disease and so on, where they're talking about themselves. But of course, because they're dealing with illness and quite often mortal disease, you know, that's going to end their lives and they're coming into contact with doctors, the, the treatment they've received from the doctors is in the text. So that also helps the doctors to see what works and what doesn't work and what works for particular kinds of people and doesn't work for others. So that's the doctors being treated, being treated objectively. But another aspect, of course, is to ask the question, what about the subjectivity of the doctor? So, so you're, you're right there. There are not very many, there are not very many um, accounts of that sort. But, of course, doctors write. Lots and lots of doctors write. Um, and they're famous. You know, I've already mentioned one. You know, William Carlos Williams was a GP, an American GP. So, so he's a good example who's a poet. So you could argue that reading a, a person like um, Carlos Williams it doesn't only write about um, about illness. Is writing also about um, uh, is writing also about his life in general. But reading a person like Carlos Williams gives you an idea of what it feels like to be woken at four a.m. in the morning to go and do a home visit, and then to discover that you didn't actually need to do it because there was not such a great problem. You could have waited till next day. And there are other poets who have written about those sorts of matters. So it gives you an entry point. Um, and, and Chekhov, of course, he's writing short stories. But in Chekhov's short stories, um, you, you've got a Chekhov short story where the, where the doctor is called out to go and do, uh, uh, there's been a suicide, and the doctor is called out from Moscow to travel to the countryside. And, and he, he's got family events that he has to miss because of it. And so it gives you an idea of the feeling that you might get when you are you feel that you've got a personal life that has to be pushed to one side. Um, and you can also read uh, Chekhov because Chekhov has also got uh, his letters, and uh, and we're in a period of a pandemic at present. But there was there was a, 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 a plague in, in Chekhov's own day, and um, and he was involved in a typhus plague. He was also involved in the typhoid plague. And 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 he he writes about those. So he writes about what it was like to be a doctor 
who had patients who are dying in large numbers, just like they are now, and so on. So, and that gives them a sense of what it feels like. So, and that's helpful for doctors and medical students to read because it gives you a fellow feeling of the stresses and strains of the work so that you then come to recognize these things that we don't talk about so much in the mess because we don't want to be thought of as weak that other people experience them. Therefore, it becomes more tolerable to realize that it's not because you're a weak person, it's just because humans under these sort of circumstances feel tired and exhausted or feel themselves miserable given the work that they have to do. And that's all right to feel miserable. It's not a sin or anything. So it's a case of pouring out your heart and all your worries and troubles on paper. Is that the only reason why doctors write? Um, well, the, the authorial agency, if I might use that term, authorial agency never does any of us any harm. So what you're doing is that you, you have turmoil and, uh, and the work that we do is very, very stressful. I mean, that's just true. I just, I just, I, it's not said often enough. It is a very, very stressful job that we do. So, so the writing is a way of taking control. So it's a way of, you know, having agency. It's a way of exploring what's going on in you, making it more understandable, making it clearer. Uh, a little bit, a little bit, as John said earlier, that the words give you, open it up for you a little bit, expands it, helps you to analyze it. So you get a little bit more control. So that's helpful. Now, there are different kinds of writings, aren't they? So, so fiction, and doctors too write fiction. So, so the fiction allows you to distance yourself from the material so you can put the material in your characters. Um, and poetry is a little bit different because it's, you're writing most of the time, you know, in the modern kind of English writing, you're writing most of the time from within yourself. So you're not putting it into a narrative account, which is like a storytelling of a myth or anything of that sort, which allows you a bit of distance and so on. So, so people write, uh, they write for all sorts of reasons, but, but when they're doctors who write, it's in inevitable that some of the writing is flowing from the experience that they have in day-to-day -day work. I'm involved with some doctors, I think largely GPs and medical students, from Queen Mary, and it's uh, it's quite an interesting project, which is about flourishing, partly in education, but also as you're discussing in terms of the strains and stresses of professional medical work. And it's partly sort of aims to distinguish itself from the concept of resilience, which is this sort of idea, perhaps, that you could become strong enough to re to resist all these things that batter you, and you can just bounce back. At, as good as new and focusing more on the fact that often things are you, you work in disadvantage disadvantageous settings um, it, it is terribly stressful so more not not how you sort of push that away but how you absorb that very much at the, at the center of what they're trying to do is trying to find spaces I suppose in working life or in curricula for creative activities for the reason I think you just stated really that it, it gives a sense perhaps retrospective of sort of control to experiences that you've had the, the question I, I was wondering about is would you kind of recommend creative exercises for the medical student medical professional as just something to be sort of built into a routine um, I, I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm always very anxious about 
recommending anything at all of, of this sort, um, because I think people use the all sort of different um, methods. The you, you know, so people, so you've got your people who are using um, physicality. You know, they're they're using sports as a way of dealing with the stresses and strains of life. Um, and you've got the people who are using, if you wish, you know, kind of praxis in the in the creative sense, you know, so they might be into amateur dramatics or they might write um, and so on. So it's always difficult to know. Um, and you've just got others who are domestic, you know, very domestic kind of approaches, you know, making jam making or knitting or disorderment. So it's very difficult to know what, uh, I, but I think most people are trying to use something. The fear, of course, is that a few aren't. So, so in medicine, the risk is whether people turn to alcohol or to substances, because because it is a fact that it's a stressful life. Um, therefore, there's got to be some outlet, and I think people are finding their own outlet. Um, and the anxiety is really to ensure that people don't use maladjusted systems. Of coping systems that they use an adjusted one um, and and we just hope that everybody finds what works for them but it's um, where I agree with you is that it's not discussed enough so nobody is saying there's no course that you go on to where the guys are saying to you that look this is a hard emotionally hard life I and mean, we know it's physically demanding but it's also emotionally hard life and nobody acknowledges that it is and nobody says you've got to find an outlet of some sort. Um, so you're left to your own devices, and somehow people do find their own solutions, but some people don't. Are there sort of dangers in creativity as, as well? So I, I suppose I, I'm just thinking in, in putting it in simple terms, it's good to be open and receptive, um, but presumably also it's sometimes quite, dangerous to be open and, and receptive. Yes, I agree with you there. That um, um, I mean, these are not matters that have been well well studied. So, so we know, for example, that um, uh, the mood disorders very prevalent in, in creative people. So if you were to look at um, writers, um, it's not uncommon to have mood disorders in, in them. It's also true that mood disorders clusters in their families, in their first-degree families, by which we mean their siblings or their parents. Um, and we also know that suicide is not uncommon in creative writers. So, so it's difficult to argue, knowing all that, that it's the writing that causes the distress, because it does look as if there may be something about these mood disorders that's linked to creativity itself. So that's one level of kind of analysis of thinking of the relationship between um, emotional distress or psychiatric disorders and, and creativity. But at another level, so if you, if you think of uh, what, what we do uh, as psychiatrists, that we are very aware, we have, you know, if you to do this work well, you've got to be properly self-aware and, and, and the same goes for doctors in general. So you've got to be properly aware of what's going on in the room with you. And, and of course, that has implications for the way it feeds into your own inner life. 
and your own inner world. Therefore, you're much more conscious of your own anxieties and very much conscious of your own distress and so on. So, so there's a question, therefore, that because of the work that you do, you are much more introspective, you are much more aware. And even though we want to say that all those things are good, but there's the risk, I still think, that we've got to acknowledge that there is a risk that that may that the feelings themselves may be overwhelming. Um, so so that, that risk, in the same way that I think that even though mood disorders are associated with creativity, for the writers, because in order to be a, a, a good fiction writer, for example, you've got to be able to go in yourself to create the character, and then you've got to put the character in a specified set of circumstances, and then, and then you've got them to act genuinely in those set of circumstances, which means that you're just far much more aware of what's going on inside of yourself than the person who doesn't do that. So, so, so my, my own answer to your question, John, is that I do think that there's risk attached to, these, to the work that we do and that we're just much more sensitized to our inner life. And therefore, if material that is troubling were to come our way, will be much more aware of the fact that we're troubled. And whereas on one hand, we think that might be healthy because being aware is what we think is good. Conscious awareness is helpful. Um, but it may also be that it can be put you at some, at some risk. So there's no way to win. Is there, is there a sweet spot? Um, well, we're still here. And I've been doing it for 40 years, and that's a long time, and we're still here. So... So obviously, it's not all doom and gloom, and um, and I'm not putting people off from doing it. So, 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 but of course, we are doing it with our eyes wide open. So we're we're aware of what we're doing. We're aware of the value of it, and the value of what we do is what drives us, isn't it? That it's a we wake up in the morning. We we are not aiming to do any harm. We're actually setting out every morning to do good. So the value of what we do makes stresses and strains of it bearable because we think we're doing good. Do you see what I mean? So, so, but that's not to mean, that's not to say that we think it's um, an idyllic life, which of course it's not. Do you have your own creative practices? Um, well, I, I, I write, I'm a writer in my own <laughs> life um, and I read um, and I run, <laughs> you know, so, so you've got to be doing all these things just to keep your head afloat, you know, keep your head above water. And um, so, so, yes, um, but I, 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 in my own writing, I don't write about, about medicine at all, very rarely, if, any, if ever. So, so that's, I'm not sure why not. So uh, I couldn't answer that question if you were to ask mm-hmm. it. So uh, what, what do you normally write about? Um, about everything else but medicine. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a good answer. <laughs> uh, you, you know, so so I'm a, as you know, I'm an immigrant, and um, so there's a, the life of an immigrant is not a, it's not an easy life. Um, so you have to remember that uh, us immigrants, our lives are pretty, very very ropey. You know, so you you know those central questions like where you're going to be buried which a person who is not an immigrant never even imagines that somebody else is worried about that. So that matters, you know, whether we'll be put back into the earth in Africa 
whether I'm going to be putting the earth in, in Birmingham. Mm. You know, so those are those are the issues which are questions which are next. Somebody who is living in exile asks himself. Um, so the troubling issues about identity and and where you belong and whether you belong properly or not, all that sort of stuff. Um, not in a, I don't mean it in a kind of, um, you know, I just mean it as a reflective human being, which is just if you're a reflective being, that sort of question, you know, will come to mind. Um, so, so and that sort of material is material for literature. That's what literature is all about. Literature is, you know, is to do with the human condition, to do with, you know, how you fit in where you are and whether other people accept you or not and whether you're doing enough and whether if you feel guilty all the time or you haven't done anything bad, why it is that you feel guilty? And if you feel anxious for no good reason, why is it that you feel anxious for no good reason? You know, so if you go and read your Kafka, you ask yourself, why is Kafka so preoccupied with anxiety and guilt? What is it about him? You know, that sort of stuff, you know, but that's literature. That's what literature is about. Just to follow on from that, you were talking earlier about the need to be humane and in your discussions with patients, both sort of imitating in, in the sections, reflecting back, but, but, but also that that is something that in a sense is, is natural to the human creature. Mm. And I, as you were saying that, I, I was thinking that, that that suggests very much a kind of human community of experiences. Mm. In what you were just saying, you, you were also going on to sort of topics that, that show uh, how different cultures can be or yeah. how strange and sort of troubling small differences that you're unused to kind of make, make you feel in a sense in exile or as, as not fully present. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a sort of, well, perhaps a very difficult question um, to talk about meaningfully, but is there a, a way in which you, you, you kind of balance those two halves of the seesaw, or is there a level at which people's experiences become more common, say, as they become more distressed? Um, or, or does that sort of cultural specificity show up just as much in their extremes as it does in their sort of everyday habits? Uh, yes, I think that, um, so the, the, if, I, if I start off, I talk about it as if we were doing literature. Chino Achebe's novel, Things Fall Apart, has been so successful precisely because other human beings understand other human beings, even though it is culturally specific to Igbo people in eastern Nigeria. So, so I use that to make the point that um, there's a pan-cultural generality. So there's enough over, you know, there's an overlap amongst all humans on this planet that if I, um, wherever I, people come from, if they lose a child, we would understand why they are distressed. Now, that distress might mean that they can't cry because it's not acceptable to cry. Or that distress might mean that they pull their hair out or that distress might mean they wear black. But we would understand that there's distress going on, and we understand precisely the nature of that distress, because all humans, if they lose a child, we know how they would feel. So, 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 so you've got the, um, the kind of normal human, the, you know, there's, there, I, 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 one of the other ways of, I teach this is to say that 
there's no human situation that we can describe to another group of human beings that once those human beings have thought themselves into those set of circumstances, they can't understand it. You know, so so if they said to somebody, you know, I live in a monogamous culture, but, um, but the patient I'm seeing is uh, comes from a polygamous situation and they're envious of the other wives, whether you've been in a monogamous family or not, you understand it straight away. You just understand it. And any human who doesn't understand that shouldn't be in medicine because it means that there's something terribly wrong with them. They, it means that they are so, so um, narrow-minded that they can't embrace what it means to be human. So, 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 so that's very important, just to reassure ourselves that, that there's enough commonality everywhere. Now, to come to the other issues, so if we start off with the... Um, you know, try to talk about slight minor differences. So you've got, uh, and again, I would say this to medical students that, you know, how how do you how are you going to tell when I am excessively joyful, given that I move my hands everywhere when I'm speaking? So 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 culturally, my the the animation, the degree of bodily animation, is far greater in a West African compared to somebody from North. Northern Europe, from Norway or Sweden or Finland, which then begs the question, how much more extravagant do I have to be before you realize there's something not quite right? And if you've got somebody who is coming from Northern Europe, how much dour, much more dour do they have to be before you know that their their bodily movements are retarded? Do you see what I mean? So you've got these cultural overlays on these interactions that we have. Um, uh, so we, we can't deny that. And these cultural overlays have implications for the clinical encounter. So, so if you think of the clinical encounter, the degree of distance, and I've examined in different parts of the world, I've examined in Singapore and in the Middle East, and I've examined, obviously born in Nigeria myself, and I've examined in Nigeria, and of course, examined in Ireland and in, and in Britain. So, so the degree to which you move close to the person when you're talking to them varies, which also has implications for whether if you are cross-cultural, whether that is problematic. So if you are a person where your social physical distance culturally is quite apart and you were talking to a Nigerian in a clinical encounter who expects you to be closer to them, whether they regard you, whether they then get a feeling of coldness much more than they would normally get because they think that that distance is intentional and that it is to do with them, not to do with class, not a category problem, but it's actually specific and they don't put it down to the clinical link to the doctor because the doctor has is uh, hierarchically has more power. So they put it down to them. They think there's something about them that's causing the distance. So you're right, John, to raise these matters. But I come back to what I said at the very, very, very beginning that you're in this trade that we're in. You have to be open. You know, if you're an inflexible person, you shouldn't be in medicine. That's my view on it. 
I just think medicine is such a subject that you're seeing people from across all social classes. You're seeing people from across, if you're practicing Western Europe, from far and wide, all over the world they're coming from. Therefore, you have to be alive. You have to be open. You have to be all the time reflecting and thinking. And, and that is a delight in its own right because it means it, it's keeping you fresh. So you're not stale and just thinking you can wake up one, every morning and just be saying the same thing because you're having to make judgments about the person and you're having to make judgments about the degree of distress and whether that distress is appearing exaggerated to you because that is just the way the person is or whether that's culturally how the person is or whether the distress is like that because it's actually very severe, you know. And that is, even just me describing it like that shows you how extraordinary it is because it puts your mind at work all the time. You're thinking all the time, trying to understand and to be able to appreciate properly so that you can make the appropriate responses. Well, of course, you don't get it right all the time, but the motivation is to get it right. And you learn when you've got it wrong because often you would work out at the end of a clinic, I think, my God, you know, why, why didn't that work? Why was it that at the end I felt that that person wasn't satisfied? So then I replay that in my mind, just trying to understand what was about the interaction, whether it was on my side, whether it was on their side, whether I used the wrong words, or whether it was just one of those things that didn't work. So, you, so all the time you're learning, um, all the time. You can't, I just don't think you can sit still. And that makes you want to learn even more because you realize that you're still developing as a practitioner yourself, that you haven't reached the peak of it or anything. How, how much of that is of particular relevance to the psychiatrist, say, as opposed to the surgeon? So when you're talking about medicine, are, are, are you talking in general terms? I'm talking in general terms. Your best surgeons are good people who can listen properly, who can reassure the other person. You don't want a guy who just cuts you up and sorts you back off. But lots of people can do that. So you know, the whole of medicine, or the whole of medicine, you ought to have individuals who are out to do good and who are out so that when they're finished with the person, the person's satisfied. And you can't do satisfaction just on the basis of cutting. Because actually the patients don't know anything at all about cutting. All they know is whether you're a good person. That's one of the interesting things. They, the patients are making judgments. They're making human judgments. And there are not very many patients who want to subject themselves to somebody who they couldn't take to. You said to me, so humanity goes across the whole of medicine. And, you, and the only way to display it is what we've been discussing this afternoon. All these things we're talking about, it, uh, they, they are the roots of how you, you know, that's the method of displaying it. How you speak to people, how you treat them with dignity, how you indicate to them that you are listening attentively, that you've understood their distress, that you understand the issues, that you know that when they have to come into hospital, they're going to be quite frightened and anxious, that you do your best to make sure that things work out well for them. All that is humane. That's nothing to do with the technicalities of the subject. Fantastic. Uh, I think that comes towards the end um, of our podcast today. Um, has anyone got any final remarks, any reflections that they'd like to add? No, just to say it'd been wonderful talking to both of you. I've enjoyed it very much. And I hope 
that the students, when they come to listen to it, they find it as fascinating as I have found this afternoon. I'm sure they will. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Oyabode, and to you, John. Thanks. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Medicine 360 podcast. If you'd like to find out more about the medical humanities, visit www.medicine360.co.uk. Thank you.